Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. I had a little illness Thursday night. Very, very short-lasting, not too bad. And I thought, hmm, where'd that come from? And then I remembered that eight hours later, I'd eaten a salad at a fast food place, which will go nameless. But, but the name rings a bell. <laughs> and I remembered that they are one of the establishment that says they are going to quit using this product. Pink slime. Have you heard about that in the news? If you've, if you've missed it, you haven't been paying too much attention. Pink slime is properly known as finely textured beef. In fact, one commentator said, sounds like something for rich people. It's only finely textured beef. And, and what they do is they take everything that's left over after they cut up your meat and sell it to you as steaks or roast or hamburger, everything that's left, and they cook it a little, and they, they, they process it a little, including spraying ammonia on it to kill the germs. And, and when they're done, it looks like that stuff right there. And then they mix it into your hamburger before you buy it, and you don't know it's there. And the place that I went to had lunch said, we're not going to use that anymore. <laughs> but I think they still have some of it they're getting rid of. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say, it's not too bad. Maybe it's even good enough. Is it good enough for you? As we come to Philippians chapter 3 today, we're going to understand that the Apostle Paul says good enough isn't good enough when it comes to the Christian life. He approached the Christian life aiming as high as he could possibly aim. Follows, I read from Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as just so much garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul rehearsed his pedigree as a legalist. Now, a legalist means that, that he believed he could do things, he could keep rules and earn God's favor. And he was the ultimate rule keeper. And you can read about it there, and you can look at it in the rest of, of some other examples in the New Testament. He said, I used to think that, but when I came to know Christ, I realized all of that human effort is just so much garbage. And I let it go, and I grabbed on to Christ. 
in verse 8, he talks about completely abandoning any self-righteousness and, and just hanging on to Christ. And in verse 9, he talks about the value of that righteousness. But now in verse 12, he adds something very quickly to make sure these people don't misunderstand. What he adds is this. Now look, I haven't already grabbed a hold of all of the righteousness of Christ. God tells us that when we come to believe in Christ as our Savior, we understand that he died for our sins and we put our faith in that sacrifice. The righteousness of Christ is given to us and we're ready to go to heaven if we should die. But as we walk this earth, God says we have to grab on to, in a very practical way, the righteousness of Christ and live it out day by day. This is best summarized in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to do and to will for his good pleasure. He doesn't say work to earn your salvation. He says work out that which was already put in by God. And so there is work to be done in the Christian life. And as we do that work of saying no to sin and yes to righteousness, we become more like Christ day by day. Now, what was going on in Philippi was some people were, were saying, you have to keep the law, keep the law. And so the Apostle Paul says, no, I put that aside and I'm hanging on to Christ. But he said, they might misunderstand something. And so in verse 12, he says, look, I'm not there yet. He wants to make it clear to them that he is not just completely like Christ yet. He's got work to be done. And so we understand that Paul was aspiring to be like Christ. Look at the word attained in verse uh, 12. I haven't already attained. The word attained, or in the NIV, obtained, it means to receive something. He said, when I believed in Christ, I didn't receive complete perfection. And then he says the word perfected. I'm not already perfected. The word perfected in the Greek language means to be completed. If you had a, uh, a puzzle with 500 pieces and you work on it, work on it, work on it, work on it, when it's done in, in the Greek language, you could say it's perfected. It's brought to its completed, completed purpose. And he says, I have not been completed. I have not already attained. I am not perfected. But I am pressing forward to lay hold of that which Christ laid hold of me. The question we ask is, what is God's purpose in your salvation? Why did God lay hold of us? Our most common thought uh, as new believers is, is that the reason God saved us is so we would go to heaven. Now that is perhaps the most important byproduct of salvation. But the reason God saved us is so that we could become like Christ. And this is best summarized, I think, in this passage in Romans 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God's goal for your salvation is that you might be like Christ. 
God's goal is not to, 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 to somehow take away your sin and the penalty of sin and give you a home in heaven and then just to watch you wander on this earth between point A and point B. We kind of like that idea because it gives us the, the quote-unquote freedom to do whatever we want to do. But God says, no, the reason I saved you is so that you would become like Christ and, and that work will be completed in heaven someday, but it's supposed to be going on now, day by day, becoming conformed to the image of Christ. When our first grandchild was on the way, our daughter Molly called me up and said, I want you to build a crib for him. And I remember my first thought very clearly, and it was, why? Because, you know, I, I do a lot of woodworking, but I'm kind of what you call a rough carpenter. Even when I do finish work, it's rough. Uh, I can make things look good with a lot of sandpaper and a lot of patch it all on the outside eventually, but she wanted me to build a crib. I said, oh, okay. And, and she was like, you know, grandfather building something for his grandson. And I said, you know, all romantic about all that. So, <laughs> so I, I've learned just enough from my wife to go to the internet first. And I went, how to build a crib. And boom, the, it, this website pops up. And here is a kit you can buy. It has all the hardware and a detailed plan for how you can build a crib. And so I bought the plan. Bought the hardware and uh, started, you know, went and got some wood and, and started cutting it and gluing it and fitting it. And, 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 and the legs were built out of three pieces of wood glued together and then shaped. And then there's a whole series of holes because you have all that hardware. You know, you got the mattress and the up and down thing and all that stuff. And so on the plan, you look at the plan, and there's a whole series of holes and a whole series of measurements. And so I, I, I measure, you know, and it says, you know, from this hole to that hole is so far. So I measure that first hole, and then I drilled all these other holes. And there are holes about that big, and, and I, I don't know, there must have been a dozen holes at least in each leg. And so, I, you know, and I bought a drill press. I went to Grizzly and got a drill press and set up my little jig and drill, drill, drill. Got all those legs drilled. And then I measured it again. <laughs> Thankfully, I didn't wait till it was time to put it together. And you know, I got that first hole wrong. And all the other ones were measured off of that first hole, and I didn't check and balance and so on. My crib leg did not conform to the image of the crib leg. It looked real good. It had a lot of holes, but it did not conform to the image. Christ is the image to which your life needs to conform. Period. You want to know what you're supposed to be? You're supposed to be like Christ. How does that, how does that Christ-likeness, how does it look in action? Well, I would just offer you several, several things from the Scripture if you would say, what does it mean for me to look like Christ? Number one, it means to be God-imitating. From 1 Peter 1, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Do you want to know what it means to be like Christ? Then be holy. 
I mean, this is the summary, really, of all of it, to be holy, to be righteous, to, to, to not sin. What a, tremendous, what a tremendous standard. That's why I called this sermon the, the impossible dream and then crossed off the I am, because it is possible, because God has made it possible. But it looks impossible. Number two, to be God-honoring. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. To be God-honoring. Number three, to be God-worshipping. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? So that you can proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To be like Christ doesn't mean that you're just saved and going to heaven. It means you... You worship. You know, worship is what we do here when we're gathered together, but it should be what's going on day by day. When something good happens, we thank the Lord. When something bad happens, we pray for his help, and we're just in this constant conversation with God. Number four, God serving. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus so we can get to heaven and escape hell. Yes, but also for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are good works? Good works are every righteous deed you can do. The Apostle Paul, now remember, as he writes this verse, he says, I'm not there yet. He was not satisfied with his level of godliness he was not satisfied with the amount of honor he had brought to Christ. He was not satisfied with the amount of worship he'd given to God or the service he'd done for God because Christ was his measuring stick. I want to read kind of an extended quote to you of a summary of the Apostle Paul's life. Now, this is from John Phillips in his commentary on, on Philippians 3. Think of Paul's career up to the time he made this statement in verse 12. Within a few weeks of his conversion, which was 30 years earlier, he had made such an impact on Damascus and had stirred up such opposition that he was forced to flee the city. Paul went to Arabia where he th thought through Old Testament truth in the light of the cross of Christ. He formulated the essence of New Testament doctrine and actually coined many of the words and expressions that are now common currency of Christian theology. While waiting for God to call him to his life work, Paul evangelized Arabia, Tarsus, and Cilicia. Then moving to Syria and Antioch at the urging of Barnabas, the apostle made a great impact on that wicked city. Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus and founded a string of churches in Galatia, at Antioch, and Pisidia, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe, and later north in, in Galatia. He championed the cause of Christian liberty and helped the elders of the Jerusalem church understand that Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians, a monumental achievement that set the church free from the shackles of Judaism. Paul pioneered the work in Europe where he planted thriving churches at Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and Corinth. He made a memorable speech on Mars Hill before the intellectuals of the world. He evangelized Ephesus and left behind him a church which in turn reached out and planted other churches in Western Asia Minor. After years of traveling and preaching and teaching and exhorting, Paul arrived at Rome as a prisoner. 
Yet even there, while he lived in constant peril of death, he was winning converts to the ranks of the imperial guard and extending the cause of Christ into Caesar's palace. Paul had influenced scores of young men to follow his example and give themselves to evangelizing, pastoring, and teaching. Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silas, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus, Trophimus, just to name a few. The apostle had performed miracles, healing the lame, casting out demons, banishing fever, curing the sick, raising the dead. He had suffered great hardships with joy in his heart and a song on his lips. He had been beaten, scourged, shipwrecked, imprisoned, stoned, mobbed, castigated, and mocked. Yet Paul wrote, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. If Paul had to make a statement like that, wherever do we stand? If he did not feel he had arrived, nor did he dare rest on his laurels, he was assessing his situation realistically in the light of the cold facts. The work of world evangelism was barely begun. I have not yet attained. This is the point at which you need to look at yourself and I need to look at myself and honestly say, <coughs> do I sometimes think I pretty much got this buttoned down? Am I ever tempted to think, how dare he or she talk to me that way? Look at me who I am. Are we ever tempted in any way to think, I can take it easy. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not there yet. He aspired to be like Christ. And he not only aspired, but he saw himself as obligated to be like Christ. Look at verse 12 again, please. Not that I've already attained, or am already perfected, but I am pressing on toward being like Christ, so that I can lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. The word laid hold, the NIV says took hold. King James uses the word apprehend. It literally means something like to seize. The connotation is like our use of the word seizure in law enforcement. When a law enforcement officer seizes something, according to the law, if he's doing it lawfully, it's not usually what the owner wants. That's why you call it seizing. You know, you stop a car, a person has drugs in the car, and they say, I'm going to seize your car, it's going to be impounded, and the most likely outcome is it's going to become the property of the police department, be used in anti-drug uh, campaign of some sort, to seize something. The Apostle Paul, look at verse 12 again, he says, Christ Jesus seized me. Remember these verses? Then Paul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now get this picture, folks. The Apostle Paul was not looking for Jesus. 
He was looking to persecute the followers of Jesus. And he's walking down the road, going to another town to look for Christians and to put them in jail. And God reached down and seized him. I, I love the way Kent Hughes in his commentary verbalizes this. As Paul trod the road near Damascus, Damascus, the mighty hand of Christ reached down, seized him by the scruff of his robes, and set him on the path to godliness and ministry. See, Paul was alluding also to this truth. We love him because he first loved us. The Apostle Paul was not seeking Christ. He didn't get up in the morning saying, Sirs, we would see Jesus! Just the opposite. But God, who is rich in mercy, reached down and got a hold of him. And, and that's why later on the Apostle Paul wrote these words by God's inspiration. You he made alive, or, or caused to be born again, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. We were just going the opposite direction. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul looked at his life and he said, Jesus Christ reached down and got a hold of me and enabled me to believe. And when he did that, he said, I have a purpose for you. Yes, you're going to go to heaven, but there is work for you to do now, both in your personal life and corporately in the, in the church around you. We owe God twice. First of all, he saved us and given us heaven someday, but he also did that without regard for our inclination. I didn't come out of the womb seeking Jesus, but God put me in a home where my parents were working to make sure that I would be exposed to God's truth and be in a church where God's truth was taught. And so from my earliest days, God was there cultivating what would eventually give forth to faith in him. But it wasn't because of me. It was because of him. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, look, God has saved me. He saved me. It's not that I found him. He saved me. And so he said, that's why... I am pressing on to be like Christ. I am obligated to show my thanks to him in this way. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. God reached down and saved us. Paul was obligated to be like Christ, and so because of that, he oriented his life so that he could become like Christ. Look at verse 13, please. Brethren, I do not count myself to have already apprehended. I have, I have not already gotten a hold of all that God has for me. But one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press toward the goal. Paul was oriented to become like Christ. Now what, God, what Paul uses here by God's inspiration is a, is a foot race. 
he uses a foot race or a, you know, a, a track race, if you will, to illustrate the things of the Christian life. And the first thing that he teaches us is this, I haven't finished the race yet. In other words, in the image of a race, you have a beginning and you have an ending. And the Apostle Paul, clearly, he, he had already begun, but he said, I'm not at the finish line yet. Paul saw himself in the middle of the race. No matter what point you're at in the race, it isn't over. It isn't over till the finish line. The finish line for believers is our death or the rapture. There is more race to run for all of us who are breathing. You don't think you're mature enough to stop growing, do you? I work out, I try to work out three times a week, and by God's grace, I've done that since 2007. And I'm sure you're thinking, I can really see it, Dave. <laughs> Just try to envision what I'd look like without it. without those 20 pounds that I lost and with the 20 more I would have gained. But where I work out, there's one wall that's full-length mirrors. I hate that. <laughs> you know, the weight machines are kind of placed around there. I do not want to look at myself while I work out. <laughs> it's more like... You know what the mirrors do? They say, you need to be here again this week. Maybe two more times. The mirror lets me see myself, and I know that I have not attained perfection. Doesn't God call this a mirror? If, if you think in any way that you are getting close to attaining perfection, then you need to spend more time looking in the mirror. Because it will show you that there is much work to be done. The Apostle Paul said, I haven't finished the race yet. Number two, he said, I have to keep my focus forward. I have to keep my focus forward. He said, one thing I do, forgetting the past, I focus on the future. What is it we need to forget from the past? First of all, we need to forget past sins. Now, the, the word forget is an interesting one in the scripture, not, not because of what the word means, but because of how it's used. And here's, here's what I mean by that. The scripture says God forgets our sin. Now think about that for a minute and, and think it through. Can God forget in the same sense that we forget where we put our keys. No, he cannot forget. What does it mean for God to forget? It means that he stops holding it against us. If, if this is my sin, and it's attached to me, when I believe in Christ as my Savior, God takes the sin out, and he removes it as far as the east is from the west, which means when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He chooses not to remember. And that's the same kind of forgetting we need to do. No doubt in all of our lives, there are some things in the past that we can't forget. 
lot of things we've done that are sinful that, that are water over the bridge, but there are some things that kind of poke up and we go, man, that's bad, that's bad. Look what the Apostle Paul had to think about. I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. He held court and sat in approval over the death of Christians just for being Christians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Did he remember that he was a persecutor? Yes. Could he possibly block that out of his mind? No. But what he said was, I choose not to look at the past. And first and foremost, that includes sin. If you meditate on the sins of your past, you will be depressed and discouraged, and you will think, I can't be anything in the Lord. Apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, that's back there. It's forgiven. Number two, we have to forget past hurts. Every single one of us has been hurt by other people. Joseph in the Old Testament is a classic example of being terribly hurt by his family. His brothers <clears throat> threw him in a pit, and we're going to let him just starve to death there. They were, and, and, and then oh, all of a sudden, here's an opportunity. Here's some slave traders coming along. We can sell him, get rid of him, make some money for ourselves. Win-win situation. Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. And at the, when many years had transpired and God had worked marvelously in Joseph's life, and now there's a time of reunion with those brothers, what does Joseph say? Joseph was in a position to hammer them if he wanted to, but here's what he said. <clears throat> you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Joseph looked at his life and he said, I know you were trying to hurt me. But it doesn't matter, because God was trying to do something important and useful and valuable through my life. We've all been hurt and sinned against by others, some of us in smaller ways, some in larger ways. But we cannot live in those hurts. We have to do what the author of Hebrews said, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up and cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness is the holding of a grudge, the refusal to forgive. And when we do that, God says it doesn't stand alone. It grows, and the result is many people are defiled. If you are going to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of you, that is Christ-likeness, you have to say the hurts are in the past. They're with God. I'm letting them go. And I am facing forward to the things that he has for me. The third thing we've got to let go in the past is past successes. As I read earlier, who's ever been more successful as a Christian than the Apostle Paul? One of the authors this week referred to the Apostle Paul as the greatest Christian who ever lived. Now, only God could make that judgment, but he's certainly in the top five, right? Right? And I'm not. 
And yet still we're tempted to look back and go, I did something great. Did you see that? Look, look what great things I did there. And somebody's over here going, hey, buddy, buddy, there's some work to do over here. Just a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering how great I, I am. <laughs> now, again, is it wrong to remember the blessings of the past? Absolutely not. Romans chapter 16, almost a whole chapter where the Apostle Paul says, thank this guy and that gal and this person and that person. Boy, this person really helped me out. And he goes right down the list, all these people. Did he remember the good things of the past? Sure. Should we rejoice in what God has done? Absolutely. Many times when I'm sitting here watching, say, the worship team or, 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 or showing a movie on the wall, what a miracle is that? And I just think, well, we've made some progress in various ways. Or we, yesterday, I had one of those moments, I looked, there's 16 guys sitting there at the retreat, and I thought, and, and, and they're all almost all really good guys. And I thought, what a wonderful thing. We have a whole bunch of good men. And, and frankly, I looked at the men from the other churches and I was glad to have mine. I mean that. What a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to take stock of the blessings of God, but you cannot live focused on the past. Whether it's failure or success, it has to be Thank God for forgiveness. Thank God for success. Now, what lies before? I had a thought this week. Do you realize that everything that was accomplished in the past was accomplished by looking forward? No matter where you've been in your life, anything you've done was always accomplished facing forward. And that's why we've, no matter where we're at, no matter whether we think we're useful or we think we're not, no matter whatever we are, wherever we are, Whatever our station in life, God has things for us, both personally and corporately. I want you to try something this... If, well, I don't want you to try it unless you're doubting God's Word. But if you're, if, if, if you're, kinda, if you're thinking through this backwards and forwards thing, try this. I want you to turn your head backwards like that, and run forward as fast as you can <laughs> without looking at all. And then next week, we'll have a black and blue competition. <laughs> now that's really obvious, isn't it? But if we would be like Christ, we must be focused on that finish line, which is Christ-likeness. That's where I'm headed. We must think of our church that way and say, we're headed to be like Christ. We're headed to reach people in the world. This church has a, over 120 years of history, wonderful history. People reached, missionaries sent out, dollars given to the Lord's work. Wonderful! We've got to focus this way. What does God have for us now and in the future? What are the areas of character in which we need to grow? How well am I using my possessions for the Lord? How might you develop more love for people? How, how do I pray? Do I pray enough? Do I share the gospel enough? Were any of you convicted just a little bit while Unaru shared? She shared Christ. People laughed at her. We don't even get that far most of the time, do we? 
We don't get to the laughter because we don't get to the sharing. And we sure don't go right back to the same place again. Oh, is there any growth that's needed there for you, for me, for us? Forward focus means seeing the character of Christ and continually striving to be like him, to be more like him tomorrow than today. The last thing we need to understand about this race is, as Paul thinks about it, Paul was driven to become like Christ. He was obligated. He had an aspiration. He was obligated. He was oriented. He was headed in the right direction. But it wasn't just a hobby for him. He was driven. Verse 14, I press toward the goal. The words press toward indicate intense effort. One of the ways this would have been used in secular Greek was to describe a hunter chasing his prey. You know, trekking through the woods and nothing ever gets in the way of getting after that deer or whatever. Most of you never had the privilege of seeing our dog Arthur chase a cat. That's really cool. Or a squirrel. Loved to chase those squirrels. Where we lived in Tuckwilla, our house was on the front of the property. The church was kind of on the back, and there was a parking lot in between, about as big as our parking lot, if you can imagine, across there. And the dog would, on the back porch, he'd get up, he'd be looking outside, and he would see a cat or a squirrel. And uh, just to give him a little exercise, we'd open the door. And he just, I don't know how fast he ran, but it was extremely fast. Way faster than any of your dogs could run. <laughs> like a bullet. Right to that spot where the cat was. Of course, the cat's in the next county by the time he got there. If he saw a squirrel, like right outside of our house, we had this row of trees and, and bushes, and he would see a squirrel, and we'd let him out, and... And he would just go full blast straight through the, the hedgerow, which was five or six feet wide. And then he'd come back through again, and he was on point. He was after this thing. What kind of effort do you exert in moving forward to be like Christ? The Apostle Paul say, I, he says, I'm pressing with the imagery of a race, we can think of, of, of the end of the race, if you will, toward the end, and they're just straining and stretching because they know if they might just one more hand might make the difference, and they're really putting their all into it. How does your effort toward Christ compare with other efforts? I know it's hard to let go of other loves. I'm human too. But look at verse 14 again. The Apostle Paul said, there's a reason that I'm pressing so hard. There's a reason I'm pressing so hard. And he says, because there's a prize. There's a prize. The prize in the ancient Greek athletic event was the laurel wreath. You're familiar with that, kind of a symbol of a lot of things now, uh, the Olympics and peace and all that, they would actually take laurel leaves and, uh, or branches and braid it. And that was the symbol of being a winner of the athletic event. Now, this week I also discovered 
that in Athens, they also would give them 500 coins, meals, and a front row seat at the theater. How about that? Yeah. That ain't nothing. The Apostle Paul said they, and he was a different passage, but he's still comparing to a foot race, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Laurel wreath, 500 coins, meals, and a front row seat at the theater. That's why they are putting their all into this athletic competition. How many of you know who won the 100 yards in the Olympic race 40 years ago? Now, I'm sure there might be a few athletically inclined folks who, who memorize all those statistics. There could be somebody here. But generally speaking, we kind of forget that, don't we? And they gave him a piece of gold to commemorate it. The Apostle Paul says they do it to obtain a perishable crown. The most perishable element in the human crown is the fact that it's based on pride and recognition. And it perishes, it goes away. But we do it to obtain an imperishable crown. For believers, the prize above all prizes is the words of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. But God also tells us of crowns we will be given for living for Him and for serving Him. And the Scripture says He'll give us those crowns and then in eternity we'll take those crowns and put them at His feet in an act of worship and say, You are worthy! I am not worthy of this. You saved me. You changed me. You helped me to serve you. You deserve this crown. And for eternity, we'll have something to worship Christ with. Becoming like Christ is eternal. It has value. I've really enjoyed working on my home over these last ten and a half years. We've redone nearly every surface you see except the garage floor, and it's on the list. But you know what's disappointing? It's almost time to redo some of the redo. <laughs> Got it. It won't be long. You know, there are some places. On, I, I repainted the whole outside of the house. I scraped. I cleaned. I primed where it needed primer. I painted two coats. And there are places that need to be repainted in less than 10 years, by far. There will come a day when I have to wear out my new knees like I wore out my old knees putting a roof on. The roof will wear out. The formica that I laid with such great effort, <laughs> not skill, I got, a, I got a sight of it on the angle like this, and I can see all the places we've been cleaning it. <sighs> got to put new formica down one of these days. I love working on my house, but it isn't permanent. And it certainly isn't eternal. What are you accomplishing in your life? What are we accomplishing as a church? God has so many great things for us, but they come 
with the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Heavenly Father, help us. We are so connected to this earth and the physical things of life. Help us to orient ourselves to become like Christ and help us to press on. I pray in his name. Amen.